Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Janice Dean Podcast, and thank you for making my podcast such a success. I'm excited to bring you amazing stories from wonderful people who make the Dean's List. Today's Dean's List recipient is a friend of mine who I met a few years ago when he sent me an email asking if I would ever think about writing a book about my life and career. I thought he had confused me with another anchor on Fox, but when I asked if he meant me, he said yes. And perhaps behind that mostly sunny gal you see on TV, there might be an interesting story on the journey to where I am today. Eric Nelson is the executive editor at HarperCollins and the VP of editorial at Broadside Books. He joined them in 2017, and he has had so many number one New York Times bestsellers. He's also worked in publishing as a literary agent and is an author himself. Even with that awesome resume, the reason why I love Eric so much is because he makes me laugh and he has incredible advice for anyone in any profession. So welcome, Eric, to the Janice Dean podcast. Eric, thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm happy to do it. There, there are tens of people excited to do this. <laughs> See, that's why you're on the Janice Dean podcast and you made the Dean's List, because even though you're very successful and you've had countless number one New York Times bestsellers, it's really because you're funny and you give really good advice. Thanks. And I have counted the bestsellers. <laughs> How many? Um, there are five number one bestsellers um, in our, the last 12 months. That's insane. Is that like a record? Yeah, I have to think that nobody else. I've never seen anyone on a on a run that I'm on right now for producing bestsellers. But as I keep saying to my bosses, it can't last, right? <laughs> like this is we just finished our a fiscal year, and I was like, that's it. That's it. Run the magic runs out from here. It's all back to normal. So you're not a glass half full guy. No, I'm a, I'm a eight ounce glass has four ounces guy. Like I'm just, I'm trying to measure things. I'm trying to figure out what things are. No, I mean, it, things will keep going really good, but partially it's just, I have the secret to book publishing, which I've told to you, which is that you call people who are on TV and say, write the thing that you'd like to talk about on TV. And then they do. And then they go on TV and the people are like, this is great. I'm going to buy that book. Well, okay. But what about people who are listening that say, I have a great idea, but I'm not on TV. When people come to me for publishing advice, the first thing I always say is, don't do it. Just forget it. Don't write a book. It's, a, it's terrible. It's really hard. And I wrote a book, and it's a parody called Oh, the Meetings You'll Go To. Mm -hmm. It's only 1,000 words. It's like the length of an op-ed. And it was still, like, really hard. Being edited by somebody else is really hard, and watching it not climb up on Amazon rankings the way you wanted to is hard. Like You had to get an illustrator, too. Yes. And, um, well, that was, looking at the illustrations was fantastic, but it was also like watching someone remodel your house because they spent the whole advance on the illustrations. And so, like, it looked great at the end, and people were like, how do you feel? And I was like, broke. Like, <laughs> but comfortable. It looks good. So you had to invest in it. 
Yeah. Well, it's a long story, but basically there was an amount allotted for me and the illustrator. Okay. And I chose the most expensive best illustrator because it was more important to me that it turned out great than that it make money for okay. me. I wasn't I wasn't doing I was doing it because it was just seemed like a lot of fun and it seemed nice to be on the other side of it. So now I've been an author and I've been a, na- a literary agent and I've been an editor. I've managed to do all three. Yeah. Um, and being a writer is the hardest it's one. It's like the triple crown of publishing. <laughs> yeah. But being a writer is the hardest one. It is. Um, and one of the things that was uh, an epiphany I had in my career that has sort of led me to that I'm much more successful now than I had been before is realizing that my customer is the author and not the readers. Huh. And this is really different than I mean, one of the things people in book publishing talk about is that, you know, if you publish a newspaper and, you know, if you if you have Fox Nation, you know exactly who the people that you're bringing a product to. And so you can constantly look at them and think. What do they want? What do they seem excited about? And how can I deliver more of that to them? Mm-hmm. And in book publishing, we don't have that. Every book we do is a different audience than the last book that we did. And even when I'm doing books for Fox people, like, you know, a book by Pete Hegseth and a book by Shannon Bream have some overlapping audience, but it's not the same audience. Interesting. So but what you're doing instead is the people who write books have content and usually have an audience, a very specific audience in mind. And they want to bring that content to them. And then my job is helping them every step of the way, making sure that they that they refine their idea to the best it can be, that they write the best book that it can be, that they package it in a way that the readers they're trying to reach will say, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. And then helping them make sure that they book the right publicity schedule and do the right marketing. And so it's still always author-centered. And when authors are like, I don't think this is the right thing, we have to listen because the authors know who their audience is. Mm-hmm. But this is this is even true for when, um, you know, when most people have an idea of writing a book, they want to write a memoir or they want to write a novel that's based on their life or something. But they often go into that and they have no sense of who that audience is. And when you look at somebody who writes a novel and, um, you know, and it hits number one in the bestseller list, that author usually has an incredible amount of with essentially technical knowledge about books and book publishing. Usually that person has spent years like meeting other writers and reading books to figure it to reverse engineer them. And they could tell you, you know, what the, when they were writing their book, what the best-selling fiction books were at the time, because they're, they're studying it the same way that, you know, a professional baseball player is watching the majors to say, all right, I have to make my swing like their swing. And this is the team I want to play for. And you're, the, the people who make it in those things have devoted full-time work energy to it. Is there a formula that you go by? There is, and that I, I look a lot at social media engagement. Mm. And, um, you know, so it's not just do you have a million Twitter followers. So I, I'd rather have someone who has um, a sub stack with 8,000 followers who are reading it 100% of the time than someone who has a million Twitter followers and gets like 80 retweets on ah. each tweet. Um, but I'm so I'm looking for an audience that's really engaged and is looking to that person as their primary source for news mm. or 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 just information about whatever it is that they're covering. And then there has to be a good match to it. And that, you know, if you have a stand up comedian who mostly posts, you know, reaction gifs to Elon Musk. And they're like, look at this. I've, you know, build up this huge audience. And it's like, but how is that a book? And they're like, I want to write a memoir about my hard scrabble life in the South in the 70s. And it's like, well, that's not what you're, that's, you know, have you tweeted about that? Oh, yeah. And it got eight retweets. And it's like, well, no. <laughs> There's your answer. Yeah. So people say this to me sometimes because I will occasionally, I have a lot of authors who are 
famous and I have a lot of followers. And so every once in a while I'll tweet a joke and then it will get crazy pickup. And someone would be like, well, you, you know, you should write a book. And it's like I wrote a tweet where I like made fun of something the president said. Like nobody wants me to write, write a whole book from a book <laughs> editor that's just like a pun on something. <laughs> Have you worked with an author that you were like, well, if you meet someone and you're writing a book with them and you don't like them personally, will you continue to do that? Will you continue the relationship? I mean, in life, you meet people who you don't get along great right. with. But one of the things that does happen to people, I work at a New York City media company. So most of the people that I work with are like Bernie Sanders voters. And if they are aware of who somebody is, it's only because they've read 60 raw story articles on how this person is basically Satan's cousin. <laughs> and then they're and then they're always shocked because my list and I, I'm not sure if I've cultivated it like this or if this is just the, there's an overlap between the, the kinds of people who write bestsellers and people. But basically, they end up really liking the authors they work with. Mm. So even anyone who interacts with any of my authors ends up being really happy because they're like, you know, oh, this person, you know, was kind and was not a prima donna and was like, oh, that's how it is. Well, you're the experts. And yeah. and then the books come out and hit number one on the bestseller list. And people are like, all right, everybody at Fox is terrible, except Jesse Waters. Jesse Waters is really nice to me. <laughs> but everyone else, I'm pretty sure I read on the internet is terrible. Right. Don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah. Although I would say definitely judge a book by its cover. <laughs> Really? Yeah. I mean, we work really hard to make sure that if the words on a cover were just, you know, random symbols that for a language you didn't speak, you'd still immediately know like, oh, this is like a techno thriller published in the last 12 months. Oh, this is going to be a funny book by a television personality. There's like there's a, a kind of language to every kind of book. And sometimes when we have cover meetings, we will have a book and they'll say, well, this is beautiful, but this is like a literary novel kind of treatment for what is essentially a big idea business book. Huh. So do judge a book by its cover when it comes to the publishing yeah. industry. Yeah. And also, I mean, a lot of self-published books are as bad as the cover <laughs> that they paid $200 for. So if you're and th this happens to every book on the bestseller list that they're a copycat. Once uh -huh. there's a place where they put University Press as the author's name. So like when Barack Obama's memoir came out, you know, it was selling huge numbers. Whatever this fake scam company is had a book and it said Barack Obama by University Press. And it was just like a picture of him, like cut and pasted from a Google search. And it made it into the top 100 on Amazon. What? Yeah, because people saw it. People were like, oh, I want to buy a book on Barack Obama. And then this one Isn't came out. Isn't that illegal? It, um, Amazon did eventually take it down, but it's not it's not illegal. It's not in any way pretending to be the book Barack Obama. Like the consumer who is buying this is a very like that's buying it by accident has put no thought whatsoever into it. And so, I mean, the people who who run that business now I've really gone on a long, no, I, interesting tangent. But, <laughs> but I like it. This is but, like the inside scoop. But the people who have that those books are like generated by AI. And so, like, all the Amazon reviews are, like, one word, and they're like, this read, like, you know, it was only 2,000 words printed across 180 pages. <laughs> it was weirdly formatted and maybe and didn't always make sense. And they're like, I can't believe Barack Obama wrote this and he got to be president. <laughs> 
But the people who are generating those are not like writing them themselves, right. or or if they do, they have like you know teenagers in Guadalajara like assembling or something. But but the, their thing is is that they're just doing millions of them. Wow. So I'm sure there's like some YouTube video we could find where they're like <laughs> make millions at home publishing <laughs> books with air quotes. <laughs> Well, tell me about that. I mean, people who want to self-publish, can you be successful? I mean, you can if if you are writing something where the main way that people find this book is by going into Amazon and typing keywords in right. that, that you wouldn't think of. So, okay. like, if you're writing a memoir about your life in the hard scrabble South or, like, what it was like to be a teacher in the 90s, nobody's going to Amazon and typing what was it like to be a teacher in the 90s, <laughs> right. right? But if they're typing, like, if they type... Hard Scrabble Southern Memoir, your book is going to be number one million in that search. <laughs> but where I recommend to people doing it is they're like, if they're like, I've written a book on how to be a loving kindergarten teacher. Mm. Then I say, go ahead and self-publishing it, self-publish it, because if you type in how to be a kindergarten teacher on Amazon, there's not that many options. Mm. And, the, and the audience is probably not going to be big enough for someone to want to publish your book, because like, let's say that you sell 1,000 copies ever, right? That's a good size audience, and it'd be fantastic if you helped 1,000 people be better kindergarten teachers. But it doesn't, it doesn't make sense at book publishing level where we're trying to sell 10,000 or tens of thousands of books to want to do your book. Do you have a favorite book? I ha you know, I love so many books. And one of the things is, is like whatever book is my favorite book is usually – like that I've worked on is usually whatever book I'm working on right now. Mm. And so, I mean, it, it is an advantage I realize I have, and I think a lot of editors do this, which is that whatever your book you're, you're editing that moment, you're like, this is the best book I've ever read. <laughs> like if you, if you don't feel like that, then you get tired of this job really fast. Wow. And so you have, you have to get in a new manuscript and it feels like Christmas day when you're like, Oh, you know, yeah. and then you start, Working on it. And then, I mean, then it's a lot of work. Like editing is the, is every editor's least favorite part of oh the job. Oh my goodness, Eric. I have to, like, I mean, we can talk about this. I have a book coming out in January and you, it's almost like giving birth. You don't remember how difficult it was at the time because it's like, oh, you want me to write another one? Of course, because the last one wasn't that hard. And then you're like, oh my gosh, it was hard. Yeah. I say all the time that it's like giving birth and it, it takes nine months. It's like, true. Halfway through, you're like, this is an enormous mistake. <laughs> Um, it's very painful and then it comes out and you care way more than everybody else. And then you're like, I'm never doing this again. And then like three weeks later, you're like, huh, another one would not be so bad. <laughs> but the editing part is really difficult. The writing part of it is like, I can do this and somebody will clean, uh, somebody will help clean it up. But then when you have to read it over and I'm meticulous, I don't like having the same word and like two paragraphs down. And that can be really difficult if you're that type of a type personality. I mean, I don't like to work with people who aren't. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I've made the mistake of working with a politician who hasn't even read their own book <laughs> and it doesn't sell copies because then they go on TV and they're like, tell us about your energy plan. And they're like, <laughs> what? Uh, and so you want people who are really engaged in the material. And now I warn people all the time because you don't use a ghostwriter. I don't. Uh, and like everybody uses a ghostwriter. What do you mean? I, How many people do you think? For Give me a ratio. If, if you're a person who's who you're writing your job because your main job is incredibly time consuming. Yeah with hundreds of thousands of millions of people who enjoy that, you don't really have the time to write a book. What are you saying, um, that I don't? 
except for except for Janice Dean and Jesse Waters wrote his own book. Uh, and and Ron DeSantis, who it is public, I'm doing a book with Ron DeSantis, and Ron DeSantis is writing his own book. Wow, that's very good. I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. When does that come out? Well, that part's a secret. Oh, okay. So this was recent that you did this? Yeah, yeah. His, his book will come out later at some point. That's all I'm allowed to say. Okay. Later. Wow, I like this. But, um, it, he's writing his own book, but most people they it's mostly that they don't have the time mm. to do it. Okay. And uh, and you have had researchers help you. This is, I recommend everybody that you, no matter how famous or not famous you are, that you get a researcher to help you because yes. there's so many things your time is better spent doing yes. than being like, was that Rachel with two L's at the end? But one of the things I now brief people on when they want a ghostwriter is that a ghostwriter gets you to the word count. If you have a ghostwriter, you're going to read it. And you're going to think, well, this doesn't sound like me at all. Right. And like, this isn't nearly as good as I want my book to be. Mm-hmm. And so they need to prepare themselves for actually having to get in there and work on every word mm. of the book. And it's been, I've seen it be pretty painful for some some authors who, even though I said that, they thought, yeah, but this guy is going to be great. And the materials generating is great. And then about halfway through, they think, oh, no, I have to like kind of write a book. <laughs> And it's like, yes, if you want it to be really good and sound like you and deliver what you were hoping to deliver to readers, you have to take it from here. You have to take what they've written and turn it into the story you're trying to tell. How does somebody make the New York Times bestseller list? So this is my favorite thing to tweet about. And eventually Harper Collins will be like, please stop tweeting. <laughs> I'm going to start with kind of a defense of the New York Times. Because okay. if you understand what they're trying to do, what they're doing seems less evil okay. and more just like not what people think. All right. So they created the list to try to tell people what they think New York Times readers would be interested in. Okay. And so they wanted to get rid of right from the top. They don't want dictionaries to show up. They don't want George Orwell's 1984 to show up, which is always in the top 100 on mm. Amazon because they want people to know about new books okay. and have a sense of like, what is America reading that's new and interesting? Mm-hmm. And they also don't want you to be able to buy your way onto the list. And this is really important. Okay. They spend most of their time trying to make sure that, like, when Ron DeSantis' book comes out, the RNC can't buy 5,000 copies and help him get on the list. Okay. That's their number one goal. Right. And so they have a, some formula that no one knows what it is. They canvas stores. They talk to Barnes & Noble. They do get numbers from Amazon. But no one knows what they're doing for their formula to make the list. It matches up a little bit with what, you know, Publishers Weekly has, which is the Nielsen Ratings Company has a has a point of purchase system where they actually just count how many books were sold for Janice Dean's book this week and, okay. and make public the number. <clears throat> but that doesn't always match up with the New York Times. And one of the things you see is that it very heavily penalizes conservatives. And the reason that that is, is because since they're canvassing like college bookstores or t- uh, independent bookstores in college towns and heavily weighting that, we think, I mean, people are not buying. Uh, I mean, the people who are buying the books I publish don't live in college towns. Right. They live in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they buy, they're buying the books on Amazon. And so the Amazon list doesn't always match up with the New York Times list. So that's what, that's why, because sometimes when people are like, well, you had five New York Times number one bestsellers. And it's like, yeah, but that, like, I have to clear the number two book by a lot to make sure that it's number one. And so what happens is conservatives are always upset. So I just did a book with uh, called Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias with Ari Fleischer. And it was number five in the Wall Street Journalist and number six on the Publishers Weekly list and didn't make the New York Times list at all. 
It, it was the number five book. It, it would have been the number five book, but it didn't make it at all. And I'm not sure what happened, but it sold zero copies at independent bookstores and they penalized it for that. Oh. Now, the, th- the one thing that is that I say all the time is borderline libelous, which is the dagger. And I think you've had the dagger. I've had the dagger, and I don't know why I got the dagger. So the dagger says bulk sales. But remember, the thing is, is they're trying to keep books that off the list that had bulk sales. Okay. And so the dagger, people think the dagger means we only put this book on the list because of bulk sales. When it actually, we're pretty sure, like sales analysts across the industry are pretty sure that it means we've subtracted bulk sales from the amount. And then put on that. So Kellyanne Conway, that wasn't my book, but Kellyanne Conway's was a book where it was the number one book in the industry by sales. And it was like number three on the times list and with a dagger. And the thinking is, is that they deducted like five or 10,000 copies from events and and other mass mailing things that she had done and then listed it based on the deducted bulk sales. And Mm -hmm. so the, the dagger actually means this book has been penalized Wow. For having bulk sales ah. and not not that it made it for the bulk sales. Interesting. But then, but the bulk sales, it seems like could be as little as 50 or 100 copies. And so that's what with your book, like we don't know of anyone that bought even 50 or 100 copies, but it had the dagger and they put it on. I know. And I, so it was it, a little depressing. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And it, but it, it's I mean, most people don't notice. But it is frustrating because we just don't we don't know why it is. And it's mostly conservatives who get it. And we've had people like Ben Shapiro. I did a book with him and he worked to like if somebody contacted him as like our book club in Peoria is going to order 25 copies like his marketing people, the Daily Wire were like, do it in week two. Just make sure you don't ah. pre-order them buy them for week two. And we still got the dagger. So we, we, we literally cannot figure out. We need a dagger whistleblower. <laughs> we do. But the thing is, there's probably just one like 92-year-old lady who's been making the New York Times list who's kept in like a soundproof box. And um, yeah. And we'll be back with more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. How many copies is a bestseller? It really depends on what it's all different at different times of the year. And so, I mean, last week there were books that made the times list that sold like 2000 copies in one wow. week. Most weeks just to make the list is like 5000 copies in okay. one week, which that can sound to people like not a lot of books, but hardcovers are not the only format. And that's about $70,000 worth of product out the door. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it is real money. Um, and then the top of the list is often like to be number one is usually between like 25 and 100,000. But some weeks there's no new big book. And we once had a book last year in the middle of July when there's not a lot of new books and not a lot of media coverage for things. And we had a new book that hit number one with like 8,000 units. And so one of the things is you see two people who are number one bestsellers and one of them might have like just really lucked into it. And then the other one had like a tidal wave of book sales. What's a book that made the bestseller list that you're like, how did that happen? 
You know, that it, that really does ha- happen because, like, I spend a lot of time looking at every book and trying to figure out why is this book and what is this book. And usually if I don't know why I've made it, like a quick – how it made it, a quick Google, Google search will teach you, like – because, I don't know, sometimes there will be – the most common kind of book is a reality TV book because that's my my wife is in charge of reality TV in my house. <laughs> so I've, I don't know anything about it. And so some book will come out and hit number one and I'll be like, who is this guy? And then I Google it, you know, and he's like, the, he was last year's bachelor. You know, right. And has like 80 million Twitter followers. And, and I'm like, okay, well, I just missed whatever Blake or whoever was up to. And so. You know what I love about you is that over the years that we've known each other, I've had people say, I have a book idea. I think I have a great story. And they're like, do you know anybody? And I'm like, actually, I do. You take time out of your incredibly busy day to talk to people about a potential book. And that's something that a lot of people don't do. I do have a, um, a mission, a passion for demystifying what I do for people, which is, I mean, the main thing I like to tweet about is book publishing to just try to explain to people what we're up to so it doesn't seem like mysterious and magical and we're like, think we're these all-knowing arbiters when we usually feel like we have no control of what we're doing at all. Because, you know, the platforms aren't ours, the words aren't ours, we're just sort of shepherds. Yeah. But I do try to help people. I let people just DM me random book ideas and I'll respond and usually I'm just trying to put somebody on the next step because what I realize is like I don't have to just take somebody who's like, look, my cousin wants to write a book. Can I put her in touch? Um, I don't have to meet with that person for 45 minutes and discuss how book publishing works. Yeah. Often we can exchange a couple of emails where they're like, oh, is that what I need to be doing next? And it's like, yes, that would be the next step. Usually the next step is finish your book. Yeah. That's the thing that people, they're like, you know, I have a novel idea. And it's like, great, write a novel. <laughs> throw it away, (laughs) write a new novel, throw it away, write a third novel. And by that point, you'd be like, oh, God, I'm glad I threw away those first two novels. Oh, my gosh, that's depressing. But it's also it's a full time job. I mean, and so writing a book is is a real job and it's a real career. And you've written three, three excellent books. And you know that it's a lot of work. And the reason why yours were excellent was because you had already had, uh, you know, your first book, you're in your 20s, I think, right? Uh, <laughs> 30s. Yeah. I um, started with the kids' books, and that was oh, helpful. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, right. I keep forgetting that you've written like a million Freddy kids' the books. Freddie the Frogcaster. Freddie the Frogcaster and the Huge Hurricane. Yeah. I've, I've forgotten you've written all those That's okay. Those books too. So you've written dozens of books. And... <laughs> And the reason that they were good is because you already, and in your other career, knew the audience and yeah. knew, had a sense of like, all right, what is it that people want to hear from me? And how do they want to hear it from me? And then, so even when you then wrote the words books for me, the adult books, yeah. I hate calling them adult books. Well, they are. They're the gr- adult grown books. Grown yeah. ups. Grown up books. You already had this strong sense of what you, what readers wanted to have given to them. You weren't just sort of writing it blind, which is where most people, when they just reach out to me on Twitter, are starting blind. They're like, I have 82 Twitter followers, you know, but I want to write a book. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a huge bestseller. I'm trying to show them where the bar is instead of slapping them down. I do actually always say, like, don't write a book. Just forget it. But I tell that to everybody. People come to me and they're like, you know, I'm the chief Washington correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. I want to write a book. And I'm like, don't. (laughs) You got a good job. What about something? You have to have something that really has had a tremendous impact on your life to write a book, I feel like. 
Yeah. What you have to have is that you just won't shut up about something. <laughs> that's the thing. Is if you if you that's uh, authors come to me and they're like, I think I should write a book about Tesla. People care about Tesla, right? And it's like, but what are you excited about? And then often they're, they, they're like, well, I mean, I only read books about this, to- this one topic and I read any article on this topic and like it's not even really my job. But I'm constantly like reaching out to professors who study this topic because I just can't stop thinking about like why is the world like this? Yeah. And that's the thing that you want to have a book on because that's what keeps you going when – and you've experienced this, I'm sure. Every author is halfway through a book and they think, no, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> This is never going to be a book. This is just not enough stuff here. Nobody cares what I think. What am I doing? Forget it. And the only thing that keeps you going through that is when you're like, but I still have to, I still can't stop thinking about bullies, for instance. That's what, when we have pitch meetings with authors, so when people uh, bring somebody around and we call them pitch meetings, but you're, you're, I would, I would like to write a book, and I'm usually it's somebody who is who is worth flying in and taking around. So mm-hmm. someone who's a top executive at a company you've heard of, they're on TV, they're, you know, so somebody with over a hundred thousand or maybe over two hundred fifty thousand Twitter followers, and all you want to see is that they're excited about mm. this topic. Because like I remember doing a call once for a business book that was like by a business school professor. And a professional athlete. And the professional athlete gets on the beginning and is like, you know, yo, Jeffrey's the best guy. He's like the brilliant guy. He, you know, he's helped me with all my money and all my stuff. And like, he's, it's really amazing. I love this guy, you know? And then the guy talks a little bit and he's like, oh, and then, and he says the professional athlete's name. And the, and he's like, you there? You, hello? You there? Looks like we lost him. It's like six minutes into the call. Like this, the professional athlete was not really the co-author of this book. <laughs> And so that's what you're looking for. But when you have come, people come in and I you know, had somebody come in the other week and we were talking about how one person had done a lot of TV and one person hadn't. Mm-hmm. And the person who had done a lot of TV was like, an interesting thing about Joe Biden is that. And then the guy who hadn't done TV was like, like it was a Zoom thing, but he was like crawling out of his screen, like waving his hands. Like, and it's outrageous what is happening. And we were like, what if we sign this book? That's the one we have to put on TV because, like, this other guy's a lot more experienced. But, like, it's he's the, the guy who's going to sell books as the second guy who is going to be able to go in. And what um, was the dynamic here? It was it was they were the... they were two they were just two writers who had been working together on a project. And um, oh, and the guy who was going to help write is the one that well, they were they were sort of equals. But the thing was, I think their assumption was like I don't even say their names, but like. They're, you know, they're like, well, Joe has been on TV. He's on TV like maybe once every two weeks. And, and I really haven't done that much because I'm a little younger. But then when they were on, it was like one of these guys is going to be fantastic on TV. And it's not the guy who has the practice. So there is an importance in the guy that's selling the book on TV. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I always tell this story about Martha McCallum. Mm-hmm. And I did a book with her uh, about Iwo Jima. And when we were talking about book ideas, she was saying, well, here's a couple. And she had thought up a, a couple of like really sort of safe, obvious ones and she was like that could be good right Abraham Lincoln people like Abraham Lincoln you know and then she was like for my second book you know after I've really established and I read a book I want to talk about my mother's cousin who died in Iwo Jima and then like a chill ran down my spine and she was telling me the story and it was just like I I could have listened to her talk forever about the cousin for Iwo Jima I was like well then we do Iwo Jima and she was like are you sure that's such a out there topic for me and I was like it's going to work yeah. because viewers will know that you're for real. When you start talking about it, you have this energy and this emotion to it that people think, 
I think I need to find out what Martha knows and thinks about Iwo Jima. Wow. A lot of people think that you become instant millionaires being a bookseller. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, another thing I say to people all the time is that everyone who writes a book makes more money doing something else. <laughs> Thank this you. Is, this, so, you know, you, number one New York Times bestseller, if you sold 8,000 copies and you make $4 a book, that's $32,000. Like, great. $32,000 is terrific. I mean, then, of course, the agent takes their 15%. Yep. Um, so now you're down to like $26,000 and then there's taxes and mm -hmm. you've got $20,000. And again, I'm not knocking $20,000. Yeah. I, I would take some if I was offered right now. But that's not the same as rich. And even if you get like a million dollar book advance, that's usually paid out in five parts over five years. And mm -hmm. then again, like I'm not knocking $200,000 a year minus 30,000 for the agent. So it's $170,000 a year. And it sounds great. But also if people come and visit you and they're like, where's your mansion? <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, this didn't really cover it. But the thing is, the person who gets a million dollars for their book is usually a person who's making $2 million hmm. a year doing whatever else. And even for fiction authors, you know, you see somebody on the bestseller list and shortlisted for the Pulitzer, chances are that person's bread and bread and butter is they're teaching in a writing program somewhere, wow. that they got that job because they were a successful writer. But but as their advances went up, their pay went up to have them come in and do things. So almost no one in the bestseller list is making most of their money from books. Stay right there. We'll have more of this story coming up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why did Andrew Cuomo get $5 million for that book? I used to have an, a friend in publishing who always called this the PBC problem. What's Pe that? People be crazy. <laughs> there's, just, there's just always someone out there who's just dumb. And there's actually a thing called the winner's curse in economics, which is that the more people who are bidding on something, the person who wins the auction is likely to be the person who is the most wrong about the value of the thing being sold. Okay. You could picture this because like if everyone's guessing, yeah. everyone's like a million, maybe two million. And one guy's like five and a half million. And if he can convince everybody, then it's like, there you go. It's five and a half million. I honestly don't understand how he got five and a half million dollars. It just, the math doesn't work on making, making it back. But a lot of people are like, well, it's clearly than some kind of like bribe. And it's like, what good is it to bribe the governor of New York state? Like this person has no power over anything useful to media companies. And like $5 million is a lot of money. Like yeah. there's no, it's like, well, they could give, you know, he could give you a tax break on sales tax on ink <laughs> or, you know, it's not going to be $5 million <laughs> worth, you know. He and could, his first book didn't do that well, correct? No, that's a, two of the biggest disasters ever for a politician were Andrew Cuomo's first book and Andrew Cuomo's second book. I mean, people are not usually this wrong, but people were super wrong about Andrew Cuomo. Both times. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, he's always been, I mean, I know you're not a fan of Andrew Cuomo, but like nobody's ever liked Andrew Cuomo. There was a brief moment where people were like, does he have nipple rings? And that was fun. But that's it. Like in his entire career, it was just like Andrew Cuomo was like a bouncer. Like everyone who voted for him voted for him because they're like, Albany's corrupt and he's going to go up and do like a tough guy thing and, and throw people around. Right. But he doesn't have any, you just, nobody like nobody votes for Andrew Cuomo because like he'd be fun to have a beer with, right? He's not that kind of politician. So I don't know, like there was some talk about AOC writing a book right when she first got 
got elected, but she's a House member and they're not allowed to accept advances. Oh, okay. And so then there was a question of like, does she even have time to do it? And how would she, whatever. She decided not to do it. But she was somebody who I could imagine people paying $5 million for because you could pretend that she is the next Barack Obama and it's going to write a memoir. It's going to sell that much. And you can imagine all of the people who run those publishing companies being like, well, when I was having drinks with AOC <laughs> and we were talking about the Green Deal, that like there's some, they could convince themselves of something. But like nobody wants to be like, you know, who I was hanging out with Andrew Cuomo. There's no, no one has ever done that. So it, it's inscrutable and inexplicable. But because none of the, you know, graft doesn't make sense. His popularity doesn't make sense. He does have the best agent in the business. Yes. Bob Barnett, who mm-hmm. is your agent. I know that's well, let's get into the let's get into that <laughs> because you were kind of my therapist for a while. Yeah. Bob Barnett is well known in the industry. And Bob has really helped me with contracts here at Fox and all of the book deals that I've had. And so when I found out that Bob was the one that helped the former governor with his book deal, I felt really hurt by that. And you were the one who kind of said, you can't take this personal and this is his job. And and he is well liked within politics and people who write books who are politicians. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, Bob is not a guy who, like you or me, spent like from midnight to four o'clock in the morning searching the internet for details about New York state deaths, <laughs> right? There's a sector, there's a section of, of people who are like obsessed and doom scrolling during the beginning of COVID constantly just like, because I can never have enough information on anything. Mm-hmm. This is like the constant mistake I make is like, well, everybody else is like me. They're, they're gathering all the possible information they could have before saying anything out loud or making any decision about something. And, right. and that's just me. Yeah. So but I, so I just think Bob was at the time that he sold it was a hundred percent unaware of what was really happening. Mm-hmm. That, he, that the things that led to his downfall, if you were really paying attention, it seemed that you you knew that there was something wrong with Andrew Cuomo. And but listen, I could see how if you're just if you're just watching Lester Holt every night, and I don't even think Bob's doing that. Bob's like reading like just the headlines in the New York Times every day, and then has like eighteen hours of meetings with James Patterson and Bill Clinton and whatever. I just don't think he realized. What was happening? And he got his client the best deal ever. Yes. Yeah. And he, I don't, do you know, did Bob do, I mean, Bob did the $60 million Obama's deal, which worked out. I mean, everyone thought, well, that's crazy that he got. It was $60 million. Yeah. He got $60 million for Barack Obama and Michelle Obama's memoir, but Michelle Obama's book made that back. And so. Yeah, people thought that was crazy because, I mean, like $5 million, like I said, it's like you, there's no way to make back $5 million on mm-hmm. a book. That's like the, the number of people who can earn out $5 million is very, very small. Mm-hmm. But then Barack Obama and Michelle Obama got $60 million for two books. And I was like, I bet it works. I mean, I bet Crown knew what they were doing when they offered that and it worked. Yeah. What's so. the next best thing coming up, you think? Um, Are people sick of political books? No. They're Although, not. Well, I mean, I would say the tone has changed. So during the Obama years, political books tended to be really about the system and about policies yeah. because Barack Obama himself tried to be boring. He tried really hard not to, you know, send controversial tweets or something. And then when Trump came to office, like Trump just made everything interesting all the time because he would just, he would, he would find out about something new and then he wouldn't stop talking about it. And people were like, all right, so now, you know, and now I have to find out what the 23rd amendment is. Like everyone knows what that is now. No one knew what that was before mm-hmm. he came to office. And so he just made everything interesting all the time. And so political books were very Trump centered. And since he left office though, 
people buying political books are definitely looking for something softer and more uplifting and more something that makes them feel a little better about whether or not things can get better from mm. here in whatever area of life that they're concerned with. And so, I mean, even all the biggest books that I've done, well, Peter Schweitzer's book about China was definitely uh, just miserable. Like just as you read, just think, oh, we're so screwed. We're doomed. Yeah, this is terrible. Except for, I mean, it's a great book because you just read it because you think, all right, we just stopped doing this stuff. <laughs> like we just stopped listening to the Bush family. Was, you know, everyone, please stop listening to Nancy Pelosi. But the, most of the other books were sort of trying to present something interesting or forward vision or something really more personal. And so, but part of that is, you know, like I said about you, just what are people talking about on TV? Yeah. <laughs> and you see with the five, the people are really engaged with something that's a little more, that feels more personal and less angry. I mean, when you watch the five, it feels like five people who actually are enjoying this. Yeah. They're, they're not just like... I mean, that's one of the hard things for, for anyone who's going to host a talk radio show or a TV show is like, you've, you've got to get up every morning. And even if your team won today, you've got to be like, all right, well, my audience is waiting for me to tell them everything is terrible. Yeah. So I'm just going to, I'm going to have to get nice and angry by, for real. And read it, they'll know if you're pretending. That's true. Um, and so you've got to be worked up about something. What do you think about authors or journalists that save a headline that they probably should have broke during the time that it was happening that, for a book? That's um, it doesn't really happen, even though people think it does. So really, yeah. So because the headline, so um, I, I edited Jared Kushner's book, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, and there have been there have been some stories about things in the book, and like the first one was that broke was that John Kelly had shoved Ivanka. Yep. The original version was a little spicier than that. I know you've told me that. The, but in the final book, he shoves Ivanka. There's a story about that. And like that's news, but that's like People magazine news. Like it doesn't tell you some it's not it's not like the things that come out that people save for books are never like, you know, this guy bribed this other person and I have evidence of the money. Like it's never that. It's okay. always like, and then this guy, you know, called this other guy a dick. <laughs> And that can I say that on the yeah, podcast? You okay. can. <laughs> but it, it, but they'll say that, and then in the New York Times will print it. They'll print that. You can't print it not in that quote, but you can print it in quotes. Oh. So, so, but that's the kind of thing, and then that will be news, and everybody will be like, oh, I didn't realize that, you know. But there was something recent that Maggie Haberman didn't report when she probably should have, and the, she put it in her book. Was it, I, People were mad about the thing where, like, Trump maybe tore up something and threw it in a toilet. Oh, that's right. You're yeah. right. But it's like, I mean, there was an article in The New Yorker, like, two or three weeks into the presidency about how Trump was used to, from his private life, tearing up everything after he was done reading it. And then, but you're not allowed, the president is not allowed to do that. And so there's somebody whose job at the National archive who took his papers and then taped them all back together to save them for the National Archive. And so the idea that, I mean, it's maybe it's unsurprising, even if it's a little bit news that Trump, like after four or five years, was still tearing up everything, even though he'd been told right. that he wasn't allowed to. Yeah. Um, and then like the throwing in the toilet part is like what makes it fun because it's like you can't really flush paper. Like, don't do that. Like I, I. <laughs> The first job I had in high school was as a plumber with my dad, and I can tell you, don't put paper down the toilet. Oh, but, I want to talk about your dad in yeah. a second, but I had a question about what you like to read. I mean, listen, you you read all day long. Do you actually read for pleasure? I do, but I, I mostly listen to audiobooks because when I'm reading something on paper, you know, it's an already published book by somebody else. But that part of my brain that's like, this is too many paragraphs on this topic, <laughs> yes. kicks in in a way that when I listen to audiobooks, I tend not to. And for audiobooks, 
I'm really into John Sanford. Okay. The uh, the crime writer. Yep. Um, John Sanford, if you're listening, reach out. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Love to talk. I have some ideas for for Letty's second book. Um, but I mean, I I read all kinds of things. I'll read classic fiction. I'll read nonfiction. Just whatever seems to be something that catches my eye and seems interesting. So in my in my the rest of my life, I'm as like uninformed a reader as everybody else. Yeah. You know what I mean? That I just like see like when the new George Martin book comes out, I'll be I'll buy All it right it. away. And I'll find out like everyone else does. I'll just like see a subway ad and be like, oh God, I didn't know that was coming. You know. <laughs> so I mean I do read political, sometimes political books, but you know, my Goodreads list is really backed up with stuff that I haven't read. Because when I'm like, all right, I'm gonna read some stuff now and then somebody delivers a manuscript and I start reading, you know, Cat Timp's memoir and I'm like, This is the best book that is I've that ever happening? read. Yeah, that's what I'm editing right now. Oh my gosh, that's exciting. Yeah. It's very good. Oh it's very funny. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. It really it really what she did that's really good is it really captures what's so fun about her mm-hmm. um, and gets gives her a chance to go deeper than she does on TV on mm-hmm. both both in jokes and on there's a lot of real substance to it because she'll just say like, all right, well, you know, people shouldn't be making judgments on first impressions of people. And then she'll be like, there was a Harvard study six years ago about first impressions. And so like there, there's a lot more. I mean, people who read her stuff in the National Review know that she's a very good writer yeah. and and a, and a real journalist when she wants to be. But in, I think people will read the book and surprise, be surprised about that. What's a really popular book that you have not read? I haven't read the the, the lady who's at the top of the fiction list and has the been craw, for years. The, yeah. uh, the crawdads or yeah. whatever? Yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's funny because like... It's quite uh, good. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can say this because this is a, for Fox, that it's amazing she hasn't been canceled when she's wanted for as an accomplice to murder. <laughs> But oh, like J.K. Crazy. Rowling is canceled for like oh. I don't even remember what it, what whatever turf gender thing that she something did. Yeah. saying a woman she defended is a, woman. a professor. But she didn't even say that. She like defended a professor's right to say oh. whatever. I, feel I mean, like, I, I actually hate the Jerry the, the Harry Potter. I almost called them Jerry Potter. The Harry Potter books. Yeah. What? I just don't get it. What I mean, do you mean? We I mean, could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> what? I, I read them when they. I read the first one when it was new, and I was just like, I don't get it. And then my my son started reading them when he was like the right age. And he was like, why are you making me read this? It's dumb. And I was like, okay. And then my daughter was really into it and like named our cat Hermione and then got to like maybe the fifth book and was like, I'm sorry, I was mistaken. You know, she was like, she acted like when somebody has been deprogrammed from a cult. Like, and I didn't, I didn't, wow. I never said anything because I bought her the books. I think I bought her a t-shirt. I let her name the cat. I was like, if you love Harry Potter, love Harry Potter. And then I was like, how's the fifth book going? And she's like, uh, I don't know. I just like I just like woke up and was like, well, why is anybody reading this stuff? Oh my God. Yeah, and my kids love science fiction and fantasy. Like that's their this is their genre, but they're just like they just find them ponderous. I think they find them like there's just pages and pages of descriptions yeah. of things, and they're like, I just really don't know want to know that much about the like what are his parents he lives with the, I, the uncle. I never read it. Oh, you never read them either. No, yeah, I didn't. We could do like a whole thesis on yeah. Harry Potter. Well, I mean, one of the things is, is, is it my favorite books? And I, I, I ask authors all the time when we have an initial call to send me a list of their 10 favorite books. Yes. And I often look at that and it tells me a lot about how they want, how they like stories to be told. And I made my own list, which is about 16 books. Oh, and I tell ta- me. And I tailor it though. Okay. Because <laughs> I think like, what is this person going to be? Because sometimes authors be like, what's your list? And then yeah. I think, what should I tell them are my favorites? <laughs> it's really hard. But my books tend to be really short. When I looked at my list of books, it's like Animal Farm. It's like Herman has 
is Siddhartha. It's like Malcolm Gladwell's books, which they, all these books tend to be really short. short. Yeah. And so I just always think like there's a better, but I mean, but George R. R. Martin is on there. So, but his books are, uh, his books are just amazing. Did you watch the series? I started to, and then, um, and then like, I lo- I forgot my sister's HBO password. <laughs> And stopped, and then and then everyone's like, it's terrible now. I was like, all right, well, I'll just wait for the new books. But I, I mean, I was I read all the books when they were. I mean, not when they were new. I re- I read the books in the like early two thousands, okay. maybe. Yep. And just really loved them. Mm-hmm. And and I just think he's he's one of the writers I really trust. So one of the things I think about when I'm reading a book is like, do I trust this writer? Meaning, can I set that part of my brain away about editing because. Yeah. And that's when I really love a book is just when a couple of pages in, I think, all right, this person knows exactly what they're doing and they know better than me. And there'd be no point in me like turning that part of my brain on. And so that's really like the standard for me about how much like I love Dorothy Sayers is because like if I started Dorothy Sayers book, do you know who she is? No. She's when people think of Agatha Christie, they're thinking of Dorothy Sayers. Oh, she's the British crime writer who actually writes the kind of books that people think that Agatha Christie wrote. Agatha Christie, also fantastic, also very short books. Yeah. But there's a book called Gaudy Night. If there's one thing I want anybody listening to this to do, it's read the book Gaudy Night. Okay. It's the, the best book ever. It's What's about, it about? It, it takes place in the 1920s, but it was written in the 1920s. Like when you read it, you'll just keep thinking, this is ridiculous. This person doesn't know anything about the 1920s. And you're like, oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. This person <laughs> this person wrote it in real time. She might have written in the 40s. But at any rate, there's a murder at Oxford at the Women's College. Okay. and I'm already sold. Yeah. And the girlfriend who is, doesn't want to commit to her main detective, the guy who's like the main detective in all her books, yeah. this is just a side book about the girlfriend who is like reluctant to commit and is very like feels very now, even though it's a hundred years ago. Wow. And she, um, and she's like trying to unravel the goings on and gaudy night is like homecoming. That's the British homecoming. So it's like, she goes to the college for like the homecoming ceremonies or whatever, and then gets caught up in this, you know, the disappearances and lockdowns. And so it's like very British and very like, you know, excellent 1920 stuff. When did you read it? Like 10 years ago. Okay. And then I started reading her other stuff. She's just, she's the best crime novelist there ever was. That's why I said people think of Agatha Christie and they picture these like drawing rooms and poisonings and the butler did it. And that's all, because Agatha Christie is like more like George R. R. Martin. Like she's relentless. She'll just kill everyone in the book. Like <laughs> She doesn't just, care. Yeah. She'll just pile up bodies like crazy. I mean, that's it. And then there were none. Literally everyone in the book dies of murder. What? You told me the ending of that? It's The book is called And Then There Were None. <laughs> um, but the but the mystery is, is you don't know until the end of the book who kill who is killing the people. And so as it gets, the beauty of that book is as people get killed, you're like, who, who could it be? Mm. And then when it's revealed at the end, it's still one of the best reveals in any book. Oh my gosh, like, I'm going to have to read yeah, that one too. Yeah, it's not the butler. But yeah, that book, that's a fun book to look up on Wikipedia because when I was little, it was called 10 Little Indians and they changed the name because it's offensive. That's like one little, two, little, yeah. That. But then you look at them on Wikipedia and realize that Tenla Indians is what they changed the name to to be not racially offensive. Get out. Yeah. So you have to look up on Wikipedia to see what the original oh title was. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk about your dad because when I wrote uh, Make Your Own Sunshine, which is stories about people doing kind things for others, little things, big things, in-between things, I wanted to include the story about your dad. And I think about it a lot. I want you to tell the audience about it. So— my mom died in 2019, 
and my father died a few years before that. And when we were selling the house, the lawyer came to us and was like, there's a mortgage note that's marked as it, that it's not clear if it was ever paid or not paid and it could be a problem, but it seems old. So it's not, it's from the nineties and it's from, she's like, this is real. It's called from the redneck bank of central Pennsylvania. And I was like, I know exactly what this is and it's fine. It was paid off. So when I was in high school, my dad, he sold large appliances on commission, which if your listeners are older, they remember that's a real job. Sort of like, I mean, car salesman now is a, is a job that you can have a family selling cars. And then, but that stopped being a thing in the 90s. And he had always done plumbing jobs at nights and on weekends to supplement his income. But he also, did, he didn't make any money at it because he was constantly doing things for people he knew, like he would go to their house and they would call him and then he'd be like, these people don't have money for a water heater. And then he would just like rig up whatever he could, you know, and take a six pack of beer with him when he went. And so my mom was like, she understood, but it's also frustrating because she was always like, the kids need new shoes. Yeah. <laughs> and you went and did three hours of work for no pay. And he's like, it'll be fine. So he, he became a construction worker doing plumbing stuff. And, but he was also, he was always involved in our very small rural town so he'd been like the head of the Lions Club and he'd been the president of the Little League and whatever. And his, when I was in college, his construction, the company that he worked for went under and stiffened him on three months pay. And I didn't know any of this. And my sister calls me and is like, our house is listed in the local newspaper is up for sheriff sale for an unpaid mortgage and unpaid taxes. And I was like, dad hasn't mentioned it. And she was like, well, dad's not going to tell you. And my my mom told me near the end of her life that my dad said that he felt like killing himself because he felt like he'd let everybody down. Oh. And then he got a call from someone and I don't know who it was. And a couple people in town had pooled their money and started the Redneck Bank of Central Pennsylvania to do loans when banks wouldn't do loans. And so they got my parents back out of the tax liens and the unpaid mortgage and refinanced it for him and then had him pay them until he was back on his feet enough. Then he got, he got a job working for a, a local oil company. And when he, things were like sort of set up enough, then he paid them off and got a real back to a regular mortgage. But it was just because like a couple of people in town were like, we, we can't let Chuck Nelson lose his house. This is crazy. Oh God, I love that story. Yeah. And that's what life should be all about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that I do know that's a kind of small town life thing that I do worry that we're just losing because- you know, and then my, when my mom was very sick with cancer and, um, and her, my dad's boss had MS and they sort of talked about their medical problems and billing and everything. And then in 2008, he had to lay a bunch of people off and he came to my dad and he was like, I'm going to lay you off, but I have to put you on furlough because I want to make sure that Gala's health coverage is still covered. He's like, I'll hire you back at some point and you're not going to be able to get unemployment, but I can't pay you but I'm going to, out of my own pocket, pay oh. Gayla so she doesn't, so she can keep doing chemo or whatever it was. And my dad was like, okay. Oh. <laughs> because, you know, the paying the health insurance is so much that Crazy. Un unemployment is nothing. So, yeah. yeah. I love that story. <laughs> and I love you. Oh, thanks. I just think you're the greatest. I know. I, I, there were so many times during the pandemic where we were texting and I was like, and I would say to my wife, I was like, I think Janice Dean is my best friend. Oh. And then I was like, but then I would have this realization that I was like, I think there's probably like 60 people who are like, oh, my best friend is Janice Dean. Like there's so many people who are like, yeah. And I understand this because my wife is the same way. I always say that our whole relationship, we've been together almost 30 years, is based on a mistake. And that when I met her and I thought, we have a connection. We have this deep thing that I've not felt with somebody else and that I can never have with somebody else. And now I just see every person she meets is just like, oh, 
Renee and I have this thing, you know. <laughs> She's magic. She's yeah. You know what it is? She just listens to people. Oh. If you're just really nice and you just tell people like, look, I really enjoy the time we get to spend together. Even if you're like, I love you, and I was like, and I'm from rural Pennsylvania, I was like, that's nice, Janice. <laughs> Love you too, Janice. I know. I know. Well, I, well, to be continued, I feel like, I don't know, you're a special guy and people need to know about that. Thanks. So thank you. And you made the Dean's List. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining me on the Janice Dean Podcast. And thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in. If you have someone you want to nominate for the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.